passage for the sermon this morning is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is written, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen. Let's go before the Lord again. My Father, I pray that you would come now and water the soil of our hearts with the seed of your word. I pray that you would feed us well, that you would feed us deeply. Lord, I appreciate the beef, but what we really need is the word of God. Man does not live by bread and water alone, but by every mouth, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, Father, I ask you honestly and earnestly as your child, come and feed us now. And I trust you for this. I thank you for what you'll do. I thank you for the sufficiency of your word. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray. Amen. In ancient times, when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and offer the sacrifices that were required by God, first for his own sins and then for the sins of others, the people, they would wait outside of the tabernacle and later outside of the temple in eager expectation of the high priest's return. There the the people by the thousands would sing, they would pray, And they would wait for the moment when they could see the countenance of the face of the high priest. Because in that moment they would know whether or not God had accepted his sacrifice for their sins. I thank God that in about 200 BC, a Jewish scribe named Joshua ben Sirah actually wrote about a day when the high priest, Simon the Just, came out of the Holy of Holies and walked toward the people. And he was so moved by this moment, whatever were the particulars of that day, that he went wherever he went and he wrote a poem about it. And I want to read it to you so that you understand the feelings that the people had when they waited there eagerly for the high priest to come out. Here's what Joshua wrote. How glorious he was when the people gathered round him as he came out of the inner sanctuary like the morning star among the clouds like the moon when it is full, like the sun shining upon the temple of God, like the rainbow gleaming in glorious clouds, like roses in the days of the first fruits, like lilies by a spring of water, like a green shoot in Lebanon on a summer day, 
like fire and incense in the censer, like a vessel of hammered gold adorned with all kinds of precious stones, like an olive tree putting forth its fruit, and like a cypress towering in the clouds. This, beloved, is how one man felt as he waited in eager anticipation for the high priest to come out of the holy place, and then when he saw the glory of God upon his face. And there's little doubt in my mind that the author of Hebrews has this kind of thing in mind when he writes what he writes in verses 27 through 28. I think he believes that Jesus, having entered into the true temple of God in heaven, one day he will emerge again to come out among his people and celebrate with us the fact that his sacrifice has been sufficient. And he will unite with us heart to heart, mind to mind, soul to soul, and bring us home where we will be with him forever. Indeed, when Jesus comes again, he will not come to deal with sins. He offered an all-sufficient sacrifice for sins. There are no more sacrifices needed in order for our sins to be forgiven. There's nothing more you have to do. There's nothing more you could do. The blood of Christ is sufficient, and so he will indeed return again, but this time he will return to bring the promised eternal salvation to everyone who has been eagerly waiting for him outside the tent of heaven. Praying, singing, wondering what it will be like to see the countenance of Jesus. Oh, the emotion that Joshua felt on that day when he saw the high priest Simon was just the faintest echo of what it will be like to behold Jesus Christ face to face. Oh, to see him who has been so faithful to us. To see him who has given the all-sufficient sacrifice for us to see him whoever lives to intercede for us day by day, moment by moment, all the days of our lives. Oh, what it will be like to see Christ. Beloved, this is in fact the destiny of everyone who believes in, in Jesus. This is our destiny. It's not governed by our feelings, it is a fact. It is a promise from God. One day Jesus will return to bring us home. I'll say more about that at the end of the message, but for now, let's turn our attention to the beginning of this passage. I want to work through verses 23 through 26, and then we'll come back and see this sort of rising crescendo in verses 27 through 28. So let me read 23 through 26 again. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that is, that earthly tent, that earthly sanctuary where the Israelites worshipped, it was it was necessary for those copies to be purified with these rites of blood and all of that, but the heavenly things themselves to be with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. As I pressed into last week, it was necessary in the strongest sense of that word for the earthly tent to be purified with the blood of bulls and goats because of what the author says in verse 22. If you look there at the end of verse 22, he says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, period and end of story. This requirement 
was not just a Jewish thing. This requirement was not about their religion that existed at that time. This requirement is and always will be a God thing. The spilling of blood is required to effect the forgiveness of sins. There is no way around this. God has spoken, thus says the Lord. And, and uh, in the same way then, because the earthly tent had to be cleansed in this way, Jesus cleansed the true tent of the Lord, the one that was set up by God and not set up by man, the one that is in heaven, not the one that was on earth. But that tent was purified with an infinitely better sacrifice, namely the eternal and effective blood of Christ. And the reason Jesus had to perfect the heavenly tent was not because there was some flaw in that heavenly place, but it was because Jesus was bearing the sins of humanity and bringing those sins into the presence of the Father. There was no fault in this high priest. He did not need to spill blood for his own sins. There was no fault in that temple in heaven, but there is the sin of humanity born upon the shoulders of Jesus, and for that, blood had to be shed, and that place had to be purified. So the heavenly things were purified for us and because of us, and all the glory goes to him. And now having entered into that true tent, not the one that was on the earth, Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God and you'll see in verse 24 that what he's doing there is he is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf forever. Unlike other high priests, he has no need to offer a sacrifice of himself over and over again one year after another because as the author points out, that would mean that Jesus would have to incarnate and suffer and die and be raised again in every single generation from the beginning of the world and to the end of time. But as it is, Jesus Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages in order to take away our sins by the singular, all-sufficient sacrifice of himself. And having shed that blood, it was enough. This is part of what it means to say that he appears before God on our behalf. He takes the blood into the inner sanctuary and says, Father, my blood is enough to cover the sins of all who will believe. As I said a couple of weeks ago, for all of our sins, this one thing will suffice, the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. You're struggling with your sin. You're struggling with guilt over your sin. You're struggling with how to overcome your sin. For all our sin, this one thing will suffice, the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ, and it is indeed the blood that Jesus Christ pleads in the presence of God. Now, the proper subject of the whole text before us today, verses 23 through 28, the proper subject of it is the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you have to read carefully to see that the author has actually touched upon three different aspects of the appearing of the Lord, and every one of them are gloriously uh, effective for us. So the first one is in verse 26. Notice that Christ, it says, has appeared. That's in the past tense. In fact, in the Greek language, it's in the perfect past. So that is the strongest kind of past tense that is available in Greek. Jesus Christ has appeared once for all in order to take away sins. Or as the ESV puts it, you'll see there, they say to put away sins. I want to talk about that word for a minute, put away sins. That one Greek word is the same one that's used in verse, in chapter 7, verse 18. That word is a technical legal term that means to annul something 
or to cause something no longer to be enforced or to invalidate something. So if you look at chapter 7, verse 18, you'll see that there the author uses the word to mean that the law of Moses was annulled by the power of the blood of Christ because it was weak and useless in the sense that it was unable to perfect the worshiper. Yes, it could lead people into a sort of a superficial relationship with God. And yes, it was given by God, but no, it could not get into the depths of the human soul and cleanse us from the inside out. And so Jesus Christ annulled it. He made it null and void. And now we have seen that the law was weak and useless, or or, or as we have seen, the law was weak and useless because the priests and the people were weak and useless. The flaw was in the people. It was not in the word of God. But one way or the other, the first covenant did not work. And so by the boundless grace of his heart, God took the terms and conditions and the consequences of the law and he dissolved them in Christ. He dissolved them by Christ fulfilling them. He dissolved them by Christ annulling them. Remember, the key to the second covenant is these words, I will do it, declares the Lord. So what the law could not do because it was weakened by our flesh, God did by sending his son to do this in our behalf. This brings us back to chapter 9, verse 26. This same word is translated to put away in the ESV. And it means that Christ has annulled our sin in all of its pervasiveness and perverseness and power. Aren't there days when your sin just seems so incredibly strong in your life? There are days when you just feel like you will never overcome. Haven't you ever had this thought go through your mind that, Lord, until the day you return, I will never overcome whatever this habit is that's, that's trapping you? Some days our sin feels incredibly powerful, but the fact of the matter is that the blood of Christ is more powerful And the Bible teaches us a truth that the blood of Christ has annulled the power of our sin. It's canceled it, made it void and useless. That's how Christ feels about our sin. When he looks upon us and the things we have done, I'm not saying that he's happy when we sin, but I'm saying that he smiles because he knows that his blood is sufficient to cover our sin. It's like rock, paper, scissors, but every time the blood of Christ trumps and works. The blood of Christ has annulled our sin forever, and beloved, we are truly free. We are truly, truly free. This is not a matter of feelings. This is an objective fact. So I want to say it again to you. For all of our sins, no matter how great, no matter how serious, no matter how long they've endured, for all our sins, this one thing will indeed suffice the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. Now, the second aspect of the appearing of Christ is in verse 24. There, it uses the word and says that having sacrificed himself once for all, Jesus now appears in the present tense. He appears in the presence of God on our behalf. So Christ has appeared in the past to give the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and now in the eternally present tense Christ now appears in the presence of his Father on our behalf. And why does he appear in the presence of God on our behalf? Well, for those of you who've been listening to this series on Hebrews, I wonder if there isn't a verse sort of ringing in your head right now. Turn back to chapter 7, verse 25. 
chapter 725. The author writes there, consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost, to the very depth of the human soul, those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for us, beloved. Christ is now and always will be in the manifest presence of God without restriction and without end for at least three reasons, or playing at least three different roles. First of all, he is there as God the Son who has entered into an intimacy with the Father and with the Spirit that only the Father and the Son and the Spirit will know to its depth. Secondly, he is there as the King of kings and the Lord of lords who reigns over heaven and earth, over all of his friends and all of his foes forever and ever. Christ sits in heaven as the reigning king in the presence of his Father. And third, this gets to this text. Jesus Christ is there as our great and gracious high priest, all-powerful and all-gracious, just like Kevin said, tough, able to rule the universe, and excessively tender toward sinners like us. He is always pleading with the Father on our behalf. He is always calling down the Father's blessings upon us. He is always working to prepare a place for us by means of his all-sufficient blood. This is our high priest, and he appears right now and forever in the presence of God on our behalf. Beloved, the things Christ has done for those who believe in him are about what he accomplished in the few days he spent on earth, and they are also about the things that he is accomplishing for us every moment of every day as he intercedes for us by name before the Father. There's not a moment of your life, believer, that Jesus Christ is not in the presence of the Father interceding for you by name. I love the way the Apostle John pictures this. It's not as though God the Father is against us and and Jesus is trying to argue for us. God the Father sent the Son because he's for us. But John pictures Jesus as an advocate or a lawyer in the presence of God on our behalf. And, And believe me, if you have any lawyer in the universe, you want Jesus to be your lawyer. You want him pleading your case and he is doing that. I don't care what sin you sinned this morning. Christ is in the presence of the Father saying, Father, my blood is sufficient to forgive, so please, Lord, have mercy. And my blood is sufficient to change, so Father, please transform the heart. This is the ever and eternal pleading of the, of the Son with the Father. And oh, how the Father is pleased to receive the prayers of the Son on our behalf. As I said, the Father sent the Son to pray these prayers for us. So he is glad to receive them. So Jesus came, he appeared, Jesus is appearing and forever will appear. And now look to verses 27 and 28. We see a third aspect of his appearing. There the author writes, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, or yeah, the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, I don't know how verse 27 in particular strikes you. But I know that uh, as I read Hebrews at full speed, in some ways, verse 27 is a little bit jarring 
feels like it comes out of the blue, and it feels a little bit like it's off subject. But as I meditated on that verse this week, I came to see it as less of a declarative statement and more of a statement of the obvious. So what I mean is that I think it's less of a warning and more of a reminder. It's not that the author is saying, listen, you all better beware because one day you're going to die and you're going to face the judgment. He'll he'll speak a, a word of warning like that in chapter 10, and we'll get there in a few weeks. But for now, what he's saying is simply this. He's saying, listen, every one of you knows this, that you die only once. You don't get to die twice. You die once, and when you die, you will face the judgment of God. He's bringing the obvious to mind. His readers are Jewish. They know the Bible. They've been walking with the Lord. He's saying, this is just a fact of life. You will die, and you will face the judgment. And then having put that fact on the table, he goes on in verse 28 to complete the comparison. Just as human beings are appointed to die once and then to face the judgment, so Christ also lived once and died once. He will not die again. There's no need for him to die again. And having died once, he will appear again, but this time not to deal with our sins. He has already dealt with them in a once-for-all, all-sufficient way when he annulled them on the cross. By the way, Colossians 3 is another place where it flat out says, God nailed your sin to the cross and annulled it in Christ. It's gone. So he died once. There's no need for him to die twice, period and end of story. This time, Christ will appear in order to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him outside the tent, just like those ancient worshipers waited for the great high priest of Israel. We human beings live once, and then we will face the judgment of God. Jesus Christ lived once and offered up the sacrifice of himself once, and when he appears again, guess what? He will not face the judgment. He will be the judge. Jesus Christ lived once, died once, he will appear again, and now he will come as a judge. The author of Hebrews will press into that quite a bit more in the next few chapters. Those who believe in Jesus, those who are trusting in his blood as their all-sufficient sacrifice for sin, those who are passionately waiting for him outside the tent of God, they will stand before the throne of God on that day, and they will plead nothing but the blood of Jesus to cover their sins. The Father will ask us, how do you plead for your sins? What will you do about your sins? And those who have clung to Christ will say, Father, I have nothing to say. I have no excuses to make. I cannot justify myself for what I have done, but I have trusted in the blood of Christ, and the blood of Christ, I believe, is enough to cover my sins. And the Father will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come now, enter into your master's happiness. Beloved, for those who believe in Christ in this age, he will be enough for them in the next age. Cling to him now, he will satisfy you later. If, he is, uh, if you cling to him in this age, he will cling to you in that age. Now for those who do not believe in Christ, For those who scorn even the mention of his blood, even the mention of his appearing, on that day they will no longer arrogantly boast against God. On that day and in the twinkling of an eye, all of their boasting will be melted and they will tremble with terror in the face of Jesus. And this is not just an Old Testament-ish picture of Christ. Read the book of Revelation and you'll see for some people the appearing of Christ will be a furiously terrifying thing. 
In that day they will weep and they will grind their teeth. They will feel in an instant a depth of regret that no one can express in words. And even as they rejected the precious blood of Christ in this age, so the Son will withhold from them the benefits of his blood in the age to come. Tragically, they will be separated from the presence of Christ forever. This is a coming reality. Christ will appear again to be the judge. The sheep he will bring into his Fold forever the goats he will send away from his presence forever. When Christ comes again, beloved, he will stand as the great king priest and he will serve as the judge of heaven and earth. And the only thing that will mark the difference between those who are in and those who are out is simple faith in Jesus Christ, which any of us could exercise right now. All you have to do is look to Christ and say, I believe that the Father sent you to be the all-sufficient sacrifice for my sins. Simple faith makes all of the difference. There's no other way to be reconciled to God but this. So, there are three aspects of the appearing of Christ on the table in Hebrews 9, 23 through 28, and I hope you see the beauty and the glory of this. He appeared once in the past to annul sins forever. He right now and forever will appear in the presence of the Father, interceding on behalf of those who are eagerly waiting for him, and in the future, he will return again, not to deal with our sins, but to deliver us the promised eternal salvation that he has stored up for those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So I wanna take now just a few more minutes And I want to talk about what it means to say that Jesus is going to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. And let me begin by saying something about the word salvation. I want to ask you to flip to just uh, two or three places in Hebrews. If you could go first to chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 1, 14. I just kind of want to build a trajectory here with you. In this verse, the author says that angels are just ministering spirits that they're sent to help those who are going to inherit salvation. They're going to inherit salvation. So the reason I want to draw our attention to this is because you'll remember from last week in chapter 9, verse 15, we talked about this eternal, this promised eternal inheritance. And right here in chapter 1, verse 14, we have to know that whatever this inheritance is, it has to do with our salvation. We are those who are destined to inherit salvation. Okay, now chapter 2, verse 10. In chapter 2, verse 10, the author teaches us that Jesus is the founder, or, or you could also translate this as the forerunner of our salvation. So what this means is that Christ has tread out the path that he is now leading us along. Christ has made the way to salvation, Christ is the way to salvation, and now he comes to lead us in his train. So now look at chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9, there the author teaches us that God the Father has perfected Jesus as our great high priest. So he was not imperfect, it's just that he had to be shaped into the image of a perfect high priest. God the Father completed that work, and now it says that Christ has become our eternal salvation. So this salvation that we are destined to inherit, that Christ is preparing for us, that Christ will bring to us. Beloved, this salvation is Christ himself. He is the prize that he will give to all who believes. 
As I said last week, Christ is the covenant. He is the mediator of the covenant. He is the sacrifice for the covenant. And he is the promised eternal inheritance. Christ is all in all, beloved. The blood of Christ is all sufficient to cover our sins. And the inheritance of Christ is all satisfying to satisfy our souls. So now when we get to chapter 9, verse 28 we see that Christ is going to hand deliver the prize of faith that has been prepared for us before the foundation of the world. And the great news about this is that he is the prize. When he appears, we will see him face to face. And in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will understand with great depth of insight what it means to say that Christ is our inheritance. All the fullness of the riches of God dwell in Christ. And so when you inherit Christ, beloved, you inherit everything forever and ever. This is the destiny of all who are trusting in him and eagerly waiting for him. The Apostle John has so eloquently taught us this in 1 John 3, 2 to 4. He tells us that the inheritance of Christ is not some object that he will give to us, but it is the glory of Christ revealed in our presence And John says that when we see Christ, we will actually be like him because we will see him face to face and his glory is such that it transforms everything with which it comes into contact. We will be radically, radically changed into the image of the one who has saved us. This will be our inheritance forever and ever and ever. Beloved, we will share in his heart and in his love that he has known with the Father and with the Spirit forever. We will enter into the joy of God through Christ forever. He is our all-sufficient sacrifice. He is our all-satisfying inheritance, which means he is our salvation. And as John says, whoever has this hope of seeing Jesus in himself purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, the one who, who has the hope of seeing Christ will spend his life or her life getting ready for the day when they see Jesus face to face. It's just like when Kim and I were engaged and we knew the wedding was coming. We weren't quite fully in union yet, but we knew that that day was coming. We had marked it on the calendar. And although we don't know God's date, God knows his date. He has the date on the calendar when Christ will return. And so our whole life is consumed by looking forward to that wedding of Christ and his bride as this eager expectation, as this hope just captures our hearts and captures our minds. Now, of course, as sinful and broken and distracted and duplicitous people, we don't always see the bright light of this hope and we don't always feel the warmth of the power of the hope we have in Christ At times, our sins draw us like the moth to the flame and cause us to come into false hopes and things that dull our hearts to the beauty of Jesus and the reality of his coming. Of course, that's true. But for those who are genuinely called by Christ, here's what he does. Christ uses texts like this, and he uses sermons like this. He uses moments like this to stir our hearts awake with affection for him. He uses sermons like this to say, wake up, my child. Wake up, my son. Wake up, my daughter. I am coming to get you. I am coming to bring you your promised eternal inheritance. I am coming to reveal my glory to you face to face. You have beheld me by faith as you read my word, and now you will see me by sight. The day is coming. Child, wake up to your destiny. Wake up. This is how Christ works, beloved. 
And even as he took upon himself the weight of, of bearing that all-sufficient sacrifice for sins, he will take upon himself the full weight of causing us to endure until the day that he comes again. In fact, one thing that I know for sure Christ is praying for us because it's in John 17, 11. I'm sure right this moment Christ is praying, oh, holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them. Use your word to stir them. Use your word to give them affections and a mind to seek after me. You have given me this name that they may be one even as we are one. Beloved, Jesus ever appears in the presence of God to intercede for us and therefore he'll be sure that we're ready for his appearing. We have to know that even as the Father found the sacrifice of the Son pleasing in his sight, he will find the never-ending prayers of Christ pleasing in his sight as well, beloved. Christ will do it for us. This is the great news of today. So with this in mind, I want to just talk for like two minutes about what it means to eagerly wait for Christ from day, for, from day to day. And I first want to encourage you to meditate on a few passages. So here are four texts that also use this exact word about eagerly waiting for Christ. I spent some hours this week just meditating on them and letting the Lord speak to me, so I wanna commend these to you. Four texts. Romans chapter eight, verses 18 through 26. Incredibly rich chapter. Romans eight, 18 through 26. Second is 1 Corinthians one, four through nine. 1 Corinthians one, four through nine. Third, shorter one, Galatians 5, 5. Galatians 5, 5. And finally, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. I really want to encourage you to meditate on each of these. I promise you that if you'll do that, your Father will help you stoke the fire of passion to see him again. So I'm not going to press into all that, but I just want to very simply say this today. To live a life of eager expectation for the return of Christ comes down to two simple things. It comes down to dying to other loves in our lives and living to the one great love of Christ in our lives. Beloved, if we're gonna see the garden of our hope and joy in Christ prosper, then the bottom line is we gotta get into that garden and pull some weeds together. We have to get dirty. We have to get honest with God and with ourselves and with one another about what's really going on in our lives because part of the reason that some of you have dullness in your hearts toward Christ and the second coming of Christ, and part of the reasons there are days when I feel like I just feel nothing for Christ is because there's other loves in my life. I'm distracted. I kind of love Christ, and then I kind of don't love Christ. And we've got to be honest about that. We've got to be willing to say to each other, listen, here's what's really going on with me. And then we've got to band together and fight against these false loves. You know, I've heard a couple people say in the life of this church that they feel like most people pretty much have it together. And I want to tell you, I promise you, people in this church do not have it together. And I know that partly because of what I know about some of you and what I know about myself, but I know that just because we're all human beings. We're all broken, messed up people. There's one hero in the room. His name is Jesus. And he's here to satisfy our longings, to forgive our sin, to transform us into his image. And so he just says, listen, be honest about your sins. I will help you. Beloved, we have got to die to false loves in our life. So I want to ask you, what are the false loves in your life right now? What is it other than Christ that draws your affection, your attention, your time, your finances, your emotions, all of that? You've got to identify those things. And, and just to be brutal about it, you have to kill them. 
You have to kill them and do this together. Christ will give you all the power you need to do that. He will do it. But just this week, I was praying with the Lord about some things, and he was helping me to see again that he will do it, but he wants to train us to be mighty warriors in his kingdom. He wants us to put on the armor of God and fight with all our might from our hearts. So he might ask you to fight, but the Lord will help you. So die to false loves. And then on the other hand, do whatever it takes by the power of Christ to stoke in your life your genuine love for Jesus Christ. I was out on a bike ride a few days ago and it just occurred to me as I was writing and thinking about this that we often make this more complicated than we should. When we think about stoking the fire of our love for Christ, I think we often, we think about big things that ought to be done and I think that the Lord is more interested in small things. It really comes down to this. The only way to develop your love for Jesus is to spend time with Jesus. And when you spend time with Jesus, it's very simple. Open up his word and read it and ask him by his spirit to speak to you. And as the spirit speaks, pray that back to Christ. Learn from his word by his spirit, pray it back to Christ. It's very simple. You're not looking for a a big high. You're not looking for this glorious moment where you hear the angels singing. Maybe some days you'll get that but it's just the simple sowing of the seeds of time with Christ. And the more you spend time with Christ, the more you'll eagerly long for his coming. And you know why? Because day by day, as I sit, there's a particular place I like to sit to have my quiet times. And as I sit there and read the word of God and the spirit of God speaks to me and I commune with Jesus by faith, It is by faith, but it's very real. I'm talking with Jesus. He's talking with me. He's ministering into my life. I'm surrendering my life back to him. Oh, beloved, as I meet with him day by day, I just can't wait until the moment where I see my Savior face to face. And the more time I spend with him, the more I just want to see him. The more I want this life to be over, the more I want this world to come to an end, the more I want to behold the glory of my great and gracious high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, beloved, it's all about the simple things. Spend time with Jesus and you will long for the appearing of Jesus. Ignore Jesus, you'll become become dull toward his appearing. So again, we don't do this in our flesh. He will help us by the Spirit. And he has given us each other to help each other. But it's really very simple. To wait eagerly for Christ is to die to false loves and to live to our one true love. Now I want to give you one more sentence. Just a sort of a way of tying up the last three weeks in a row. The Lord gave me this yesterday and it's really been blessing me. I want to commend you to meditate on this. Christ is three things for us. He is our all-sufficient sacrifice. He is our all-satisfying inheritance. And now this week, he is our all-consuming hope. Christ is our all-sufficient sacrifice. He is enough for our sins. Christ is our all-satisfying inheritance. When I have him, I need nothing else. And he is our all-consuming hope. When I long to see Jesus Christ, the things of this world, they just fade away. They just fade away into the glory of his presence. Let me pray. My Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the author of Hebrews. I thank you for what it took to get the letter of Hebrews to us in Elk River in 2013. I thank you for calling me to preach through this letter. I thank you for calling these precious people to listen well for so many months to the preaching of this letter. 
And I pray now, Father, that you would cause the power of your word to have great effects in the lives of those you love. You, Lord Jesus, have appeared for us. You, Lord Jesus, do now appear for us in your Father's presence. And you, Lord Jesus, will appear again for us for the glory of your name. So come now, feed us, grow us up into your likeness, I pray, and give us a longing to see you. We love you, Lord, and we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.